0: all right welcome back to the struck podcast i'm your co-host dan Blewett. on today's show we have got a lot of actually pretty interesting topics number one we'll chat about nasa their uh they have a helicopter flight the ingenuity potentially taking place soon on mars which is actually really interesting because of the density of the atmosphere so that's actually a big challenge and that'll be the first uh flight ever taken off from another planet so pretty cool uh, we'll chat about boeing a little bit they've had an electrical issue with their 737 max We'll talk about helicopters a bunch in our engineering segment. Uh, recently last month, a helicopter was struck by lightning, had to make an emergency landing. So we'll talk a little bit about the redundancy systems that go into keeping helicopter, uh, travel safe. And then our EV tailwall segment, we got a bunch to talk about on whisk today with a long, uh, PDF they put out about the future of air taxis. We'll also talk a little bit about, uh, UPS making a purchase from beta and a couple other thoughts. So Alan, how you doing, sir? Let's talk NASA.
1: Yeah, this NASA thing is pretty cool, huh? Helicopters on another planet.
0: Yeah, I watched the uh, Wall Street Journal did a great video on this. They featured one of the engineers, uh, the head engineer, who was uh, you know behind behind the uh, the contractor who was working on this project for NASA. But they're set to go uh, on April 10th. It looks like, um, or, or maybe just early or in April, and then it looks like they're gonna not fly until after April 14th um but it seems like they have high hopes and the engineering seems to hold up they tested this you know in a like a vacuum chamber and <laughs> they seem like they've done all their simulations well which uh, obviously one would expect with this being yeah. such an important thing but what's what jumps out to you having you know seen the engineering video and and learning a little bit about this uh ingenuity uh drone
1: the, well the the atmosphere of mars is uh less dense I and mean, they're just less it's mostly carbon dioxide, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the atmosphere is less dense, which makes it harder for any sort of lifting body to fly because the way things fly is essentially they're directing. In on the case of earth, they're directing the air air down aircraft up and, and a helicopter, same sort of thing. Rotating blades is pushing, sort of pushing the air down and it goes up And in a less dense atmosphere. It's much harder to do. You need much higher angle of attack and you have to be a little more precise about it. Um, So the the air environment guys, uh, the only way to test a helicopter like that on on this planet is to actually put it in a vacuum chamber and pull it down, and well, fill it with carbon dioxide and then pull it down, so they got a partial vacuum in it to simulate the atmosphere on Mars. But you can in in a vacuum chamber like that, and it's unique in a sense. And I used to work around those big vacuum chambers when we worked in the space. Space world years ago, is that the air inside of them is well whatever air is inside of them is calm, right? So you 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 don't have the normal turbulence, w- crosswinds, all those kind of things that would come into on a, on Mars is one of <laughs> the winds on Mars is one of the things you have to deal with. So the instability uh, is going to be interesting, and, and maybe that's why they're pushing back some of the. Uh, initial flights of the, of this helicopters, because they're getting some meteorological data that's telling some information where they can go analyze it and run it through the run through the simulations to see if they, when they can fly it. Right. So you, you want to fly it when it's. daylight, one you, and you also want to fly it when the winds are calm and you don't get up in the air and get tumbled over, which would be the worst case scenario. So there's, there's a lot to it. Um, and I guess, Dan, you know, when any sort of new trial like this, I remember some of the early landings on Mars, with some of the spacecraft. They weren't trying to do a whole lot there. They're just trying to get some basic functionality out of the system they were working mm-hmm. with, and then get to the next one, right? So, like this, what's this? What's the size of this rover that's on Mars right now that they just landed? It's about the size of a car, right? Isn't that the? I, th- I think so. Yeah versus the first ones which are the the little pathfinder one which is about the size of a (laughs) a remote control car sort of thing Mm so they've grown exponentially don't you think that this helicopter experiment if it does work is going to get exponentially bigger
0: that's what the engineer said he said yeah we just want to get data and figure out where we're going next and and you can tell just by the design of this it's a little box on the bottom with four legs and two (laughs) you know carbon fiber (laughs) composite rotors things super simple and I think you know it's the yeah. way it was designed to be so um yeah this is clearly no, yeah just no like tail just rotor the, the base starting starting mo- uh you know model so but they have counter rotating rotors Flags, is that right? that's why they don't have um uh, a tail rotor. No, a tail
1: rotor, right. Yes, yeah, because if you have just a the single rotor, you have to have a tail rotor to count on yeah, the, the to balance. The balance forces. It. Yeah. So the the, the counter rotating is probably a lot more compact, also. But I, I, it kind of makes you wonder if if the helicopter does work, why would you put another driving drone on a planet? You probably wouldn't. Uh, mm-hmm. because you're limited as to how far it can traverse where with something as mobile as a helicopter where you can traverse miles in a day to different parts of the planet that would make infinitely more sense because of how much more data you could gather in fact it makes you wonder if they'll uh, you know put put a series of, of flying vehicles on mars just to to get a better sense of the of the planet and and figure out the different parts of the planet and the environments in different parts of the planet i, I, I think it just opens up so many mo- more opportunities than they would have in the past so it, it's a really cool experiment
0: well isn't that going to be a big challenge though i mean how far can a drone go on battery power alone especially when it's going to have to fight a little bit harder to get lift with the the lighter atmosphere right right um is that going to be i mean could this fly a couple miles and come back i mean i guess I don't know. They probably put a pretty big batteries.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. With big enough batteries and solar panels, you could probably do it. You know what? It's a question similar to the aircraft, uh, winged, uh, winged aircraft versus helicopters on how far they can fly. A winged aircraft can always fly further. It's much more efficient in flying distances. But you need a place to land right so that's a difficulty with it where the helicopter takes off land so we're
0: saying the EVTOL segment is going to mars that's what it sounds like here well
1: it'd be similar yeah if you're if you want to do something like that where you can take off and land vertically but yet traverse miles at a time then that would be the, that would be the right solution but obviously yeah, we maybe a ro- gyrocopter
0: gyrocopter <laughs> oh, yeah best of both yeah. worlds
1: yeah possibly if, if if you have enough atmosphere to get enough lift to do it yes you can yeah. you could do that yeah
0: well that's an interesting thought as a as a a non-engineer just thinking that yeah you know you need to have enough thickness essentially in the atmosphere to like have something to actually push down with your rotors it's an interesting yeah. thought like you just think of you know another planet like You just think of the physics of other worlds being the same as on Earth, but they're not. And that's just an (laughs) interesting thought that it's got to work so much harder to have something to actually shove to, like, direct, you know, create those forces. So it's interesting.
1: Yeah, it's like swimming in a pool without any water, right? When you have water in there, you can propel yourself. If there's no water, you can't propel yourself. It's roughly that situation. Yeah.
0: So Boeing's had another little hiccup. It sounds like they've grounded some of their jets because of an electrical issue. Um, you know, an article here by CNN business, uh, basically like, it looks like 16 customers were asked to address this issue, uh, for a safety concern. And it sounds like they only do this where they suggest grounding the plane when it's like relatively potentially catastrophic. Is that correct? I mean, is this a little thing or maybe a bigger thing?
1: It's hard to say because there hasn't been a lot of information out on it yet. If they have an airworthiness directive that goes out from the FAA, that's a little more uh, critical. I mean, they can, they can ground all the airplanes, FAA can ground all the airplanes and make them do a repair or do, or typically do an inspection before they allow them to fly again or give them the very short time window in which they have to do an inspection in. It sounds like this has something to do with an aircraft power ground uh, somewhere on the airplane where they may not have a, a good enough ground it makes you think mm-hmm. there's just something yeah. missed in manufacturing because it's such an old airplane. There can't be much difference from the previous generation, you wouldn't think. Well, this, so, the, this is the
0: 37 Max. This is the brand new one. Yeah. But you're saying the 737 lineage is so old that gotcha.
1: Right. And the power distribution system is not going to be that much different than it was from the previous generation. It's all okay. derivative, essentially. So if they have some real fundamental issue. It's probably just some manufacturing oversight that they've New employee, missed quality step, missed something in the planning that got overlooked or someone wasn't reading an instrument or they had a, or a piece of calibrated instrument wasn't calibrated properly and was reading a wrong reading. I mean, all those <laughs> relatively simple things come into it because it doesn't sound like it's an engineering thing. No one's screaming engineering made a design error as much as sounds like it's something they caught on the manufacturing line. And the right thing to do in those situations is to, one, identify, flag it, sort of, bring it up the, the the hierarchical chain of of manufacturing engineering get it to to someone who can really evaluate and determine like what does this affect and then identify all the all the affected airlines and tell them what's happening and obviously tell the FAA what's going on mm-hmm. so it's it's the right move so even though it shows up in the newspapers as oh look that's another 737 issue with the max yes there is but this is what you want to have happen because what you don't want to have happen is somebody have an issue on the manufacturing line and ignore it and not tell somebody. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then there's, then there's an error further out. So when you're building such a complicated vehicle, like a airliner, there are always manufacturing escapes of some level, you know, you don't want any, right. But, but things do happen because it's made by people and, it's better that the system is set up to catch those things, identify them, and to inform customers than to not. So, I, I you know, there's a lot of gonna be a lot of press about this this week, but I think Boeing is doing the right thing here.
0: Well, and so this is my last question to you before we move on. But how do they 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 catch these? So, like when the FAA is like, "Hey guys, we got to do this." Mm. How did they find that issue? Was it the FAA rooting around? They have their own plane; they just fly around, and when something goes wrong, they well, they scold yeah. everyone, or how how does this? stuff gets brought
1: to light. Typically it's not an FAA inspector that will identify. It's usually a maintenance person at an airline may notice it and inform up the chain of to the eventually the manufacturer what's going on or the the operators or maintenance people or the or the installers on the assembly line see an issue haven't seen before and they and they raise it right so it's part of that safety structure that's built into the airline business and the airplane business that you if you if you have an issue that seems like it could be a safety issue where it could affect the the aircraft or the safety of the aircraft they have a reporting system and that that really gets dealt with right so you need to bring more people into it to review it that's how it usually gets caught it it's not like what People tend to think about there's just FAA inspector with a hat on walking mm-hmm. around the tarmac, you know, tapping on the airplanes, looking into the, looking yeah, that's, to, with flash the flashlight around.
0: Yeah, I want an right. old guy with a wrench just tapping and kicking the tires. So that's <laughs> right. that's what it is that, in my that's head. That's
1: not how it works, right? So someone who's knowledgeable in that part of the airplane sees uh, an anomaly and flags it. That's usually how it happens. And in a good in, in a good safety environment. The the employees feel like that's part of their job to flag that stuff and to tell somebody else that's, that's yeah. good. In a bad sort of repressive environment where they get beat up for raising issues, that's bad. You don't, you don't want that. But there's also that trade off too, where uh, like happens during union disputes where the maintenance workers will start flagging everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that also brings into a safety risk also, because you can't filter out the, the noise from the real, real stuff. Right. So, you know, it, it it really is people working with people. That's what it comes down to. Safety is really comes down to people working with people.
0: All right. So on our engineering segment today, we're going to talk a bunch about helicopters. So uh, last month, a offshore helicopter was uh, forced into an emergency landing. This reporting from energyvoice.com uh off the coast of scotland so uh the shetland coast guard um they had to make an emergency landing after getting struck by lightning so obviously alan there's been you know with kobe bryant's death um you know yeah. early last year and uh you know it's and then of course um you know uh the member of the Deso family earlier uh, just a couple months ago you know like helicopters and their safety records come into question and just or really just brought into the spotlight. So obviously mm. there's a lot, maybe less redundancy with just the rotor system. Um, but obviously there's still plenty of redundancy in there, right? These are yeah. well-built machines in general. Yes. But take us through, you know, what happens with a lightning strike with helicopters? Because we haven't talked a lot about it, about it here. And then what, um, what what's the general state of safety for helicopters?
1: Well, the aircraft that got struck was a Sikorsky S-92. And I did some of the lightning testing on that aircraft and was being developed. And I was happened to crawl around that aircraft for probably a week or more, uh, when the, the certification testing was going on. So I have a sense of that aircraft. It's a relatively large helicopter and, mm-hmm. it, and it's meant for mostly shuttling large groups of people to and from offshore oil platforms. That's one of its prime missions. So it's, it's just, just really robust.
0: Yeah. And in this article, it said there are 14 people on board. That's a lot of, a right. lot of people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it, it has some of the most advanced uh, maintenance systems and avionic systems and power plant and technology in it because it's a relatively new helicopter. The the I think the issue comes about in this particular case where in the North Sea, particularly this time of year, sort of wintertime, the lightning strikes can be big. And when I do I mean big. They've had helicopters get severely damaged and land in the water out there. Uh, back in the 90s so there is always a concern and the pilots all know about those things typically and if you're if you're in a, a helicopter which even though this is a larger helicopter it still feels like you're in like a basically a large minivan or a large van uh, so like a 20 passenger van kind of thing and if the lightning strike is big enough, it'll scare the living heck out of you, <laughs> and it, it will. I mean, it's because they have huge lightning strikes out there, so they probably took a very, a, a relatively larger lightning strike and maybe spooked the pilots, and, and not so much spooked in terms of scared of like, hey, let's let's just be on the safe side. Let's let's declare an emergency and make sure everybody knows where we're at. In case something Mm -hmm. were to happen to the aircraft before we could get to land, they would be tracking us so they could come find us because it does have life rafts and all the accoutrements to land in the the water. So it's more like a tracking thing than it is a safety of the aircraft issue. You, You want someone to know where you're at because the North sea is really cold and you're not going to live out there very long. So you want somewhere somewhere to come find you that that's most of it, but the technology in that S 92 is amazing. Um, it's really amazing. It has a number of systems that health maintenance systems that sort of predetermine when you're going to have a, when you need to do some advanced maintenance. So it's sort of catching things before they get to a serious state. Um, there's a lot of, uh, just I I can't describe because, but there's a lot, there's a lot of advanced features in that, in that aircraft. So it, it's a really, really safe aircraft, honestly.
0: Well, so in, in this interesting article by, uh, NPR, which was released back, uh, you know, January of last year, you know, they just talk about the incident rates, you know, that the fatal accident rate of helicopters is right. Well, at least in, in 2018 was 0.72 per hundred thousand flight hours. And of course, with like commercial aviation. It could be zero for a year, right? There might not be any right. major plane crashes in a year, which yeah. is great. Um, and of course, if you compare that to driving in a car, which is fundamentally different, um, you know Americans spend fifty-one minutes on average in a car each day. So there's a ton more contact time with, of ve- right. you know, being at a vehicle with other vehicles that could crash into you through no fault of your own. <laughs> lots of other things, right? Yeah. There's so much more. It's really hard to compare the two things because in a helicopter, or in a commercial airliner it's not really a an an issue that you're going to crash into another thing. Right. Like not really. Um, But if you're driving down the street just now, you have to actively avoid lots of other people who could not be working as hard to actively avoid you. They could be texting. (laughs) Right. You know, all sorts of stuff. So very interesting differences there. But uh, obviously, helicopters do have a a higher um, fatality rate. And then it says in this NPR article that personal or private rides account for uh, just 3% of flight hours, but more than a quarter of fatal accidents. Sure. So what what do you how do you explain some of the differences here? And I mean, you know, you think of just this one rotor and that if the engine shuts off, the thing just falls out of the sky like a rock. But that's not exactly the case all the time. There's auto rotation. Is that right? There's like some right. things they can do.
1: Sure. They, they have they have techniques to to get on the ground relatively safely uh with auto rotation just free rotating of the blades uh, and changing the pitch of the blade just get close to the ground the the issue from the sort of private pilot to the commercial pilot is the bigger disparity if you're piloting your own aircraft or driving your own car we've all been there at some point where we want to get home Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that seems to be the big driver so if i if it's midnight and i'm driving across kansas and I got two more hours to go. Do I pull over and call it a day or do I drive the two hours? And most people will tend to drive the two hours. That's what yeah. will happen. And the same thing happens on aircraft and helicopters where they're in a situation where they're trying to beat the weather. They're trying to beat the time clock. It's starting to get dark and that radar for for VFR uh, IFR flight and they're flying into IFR conditions or near IFR conditions and they get themselves in trouble and they crash that tends to happen more on the, uh, private side. If I'm the owner and I'm driving, I'm flying the thing uh, that more, more likely to happen than if I'm a corporate or a professional pilot where it's a job, right? Mm-hmm. It's a job. I don't have to be anywhere. I'm going to try to help my client, but I'm not going to risk that client's life. Right? So when I bring a second person into it, I think the dynamics change and the professional pilots also have tend to have more flight hours and tend to have a lot more training in general, in general. So you don't get yourselves into those situations. And I think that's where you see the disparity. There's a lot of get home, what they call get home that goes mm-hmm. on. And that drives a lot of accidents. I, I think it's a, sort of the same thing when you're driving a car. If you're If you're in a car and it's late and you're by yourself, you're going to take more risk than if you have your kids in the back. That's just the way that it goes right so it's sort of a human nature thing
0: i literally rolled my my jeep in high school because (laughs) i was in trouble it was very late at night it's a long story but i was in trouble so i was trying to get home faster took a curve too fast that i knew my car my jeep was not capable of making it was like a really hairpin you know state like a state park back road yeah. and i should have yeah. slowed down and normally i would have but i didn't at that point i didn't yep. slow on enough and i was like oh man you shouldn't have done and then i felt my tires little slid, slide a little bit and then i counter steered and poof i was on my roof before i even that was knew it. it right <laughs> yeah. so i can I relate to this fast yeah. well and they also the, the big remark with like um what is it uh tightrope walkers is that most of them fall in the last tiny like the last 10 feet or something really because they've They've done the whole thing and they're very focused. And now they're so close, like they can see the end that they start losing focus on their craft and focus on the end, like I'm almost done. There it is. I can see it. Let's just get there. Whereas those last six feet, when you're hovering, you know, many feet like above the building, and this was something that the, um, if you've ever seen that documentary about the guy who walked between, was it between the two skyscrapers in New York? I don't remember if it was yes. between the Twin Towers, yes. but the twin towers, he, talked, yes. he, he talked about that. He said people like experienced tightrope walkers don't fall in the middle. He said they fall at the end. He said because wow. you feel like you've done it already, but you're not done. And those and any foot could kill you. Any step could kill you, whether it's the first one, the middle thousandth step or the very last step, it's the same. You know consequence of you missing that step, right? But he said, you know, and they get to the end, they lose their focus because they see it and they think they're done, and they're not. So wow, yeah, same kind no, of man,
1: thing. So it's sort of a human nature thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that.
0: But yeah, I guess uh, okay. So helicopters, obviously you know like i said they've been brought in the spotlight in this past year especially with a couple yeah. real high profile deaths but you know it sounds like they're not as unsafe as maybe
1: no and the, and the, and the, the maintenance seems. on them the maintenance and the design of, of helicopters and rotorcraft has gotten so much better over the last 20 30 years there's so much better technology into them much better materials there's much more maintenance going on much better everything that you're just the safety record is really good for what it is
0: All right, so moving on to our EVTOL segment today. Uh, first, let's start with uh, some good news. So UPS purchases uh, some of Beta's uh, aircraft. Which, if you look at the the Beta EVTOL, it really just looks like a helicopter with a big, you know, contraption on top to support multiple, you know, electric rotors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty cool design. So UPS is purchasing. Uh, you know, up to, it says up to 150 is reporting from aviation today. Uh, Mm -hmm. but they'll get their, maybe their first 10 by 2024, which is still, you know, three years off. Um, and of course subject is still certification, all that, all that other stuff. Sure. Um, but UPS seems excited about it, that they're going to be able to integrate this into their business and provide better value for their customers. And it's unclear to me what they're going to transport in them because it doesn't seem like they have tremendous cargo capacity. Um. You know, but I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see what, what kind of stuff they UPS plans to do with it. But um, how do you feel about Beta's design? I mean, does that seem like a good fit for for UPS?
1: I don't know if it's a great fit for UPS quite yet because we haven't seen a lot about the lifting capabilities of the aircraft. Obviously, mm-hmm. the design makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think they're going in the right direction in, in a lot of ways on the aircraft design and trying to hit their, where their expertise is and then sort of lets the suppliers do a lot of the other things that happen with an aircraft or user suppliers expertise to get the aircraft to certification faster. That all makes sense to me. Uh, the UPS exposure and the, the press from UPS is interesting in that uh, UPS obviously thinks there's some routes they can cover with the aircraft and, and maybe it has to do with quick delivery of, of uh, packages or short routes that are happening. Uh there's a, there's a variety of different things, but I think from a UPS perspective, they want to try new technology to see if there's any applications. It's sort of like the drone uh, drone packaging where they're using drones to move. I think FedEx is using drones to move packages in Memphis at their own terminal from like terminal mm-hmm. one end of the terminal to the other. So they're playing around with technology to see where it goes because you don't want to be left out if the technology takes off and you happen to find paying customers for it you don't want to be left out so you you want to dabble in it enough to get it moving and and getting to the next stage to the certification stage obviously and then test it out and then if it does work then just keep buying more and more of them right i I think that's probably where they're going you know fedex is in the middle of having a twin turbo prop high wing airplane designed by textron uh which is going to be reaching certification i think in 2021 or 2022 it's it's in flight testing right now so i can't think it's that far off Mm -hmm. it's the same sort of thing where it's it's just an efficient um relatively i wouldn't say a short hauler but can haul a lot of cargo repeatedly get it in get it out get the airplane off uh sort of fedex designed airplane and fedex hasn't been too much in the design of airplanes but it looks like they've had a lot of say in this particular textron airplane so you you may see more and more of the air of the haulers the UPSs, the fedex's of the world and and the amazons of the world which is starting their own sort of delivery airline service having more say about what actually happens on the design aspects that's going to be probably the bigger play fedex has been Mm. involved obviously with textron one and has helped they buy a lot of Boeing airplanes, so I'm sure they're talking to Boeing about things they want cargo-wise to happen in the airplane. I would say UPS has done that too, but this electric technology opens up more doors for them to try new things. And they have engineering departments, pretty substantial engineering departments, these these airline companies, movers, UPSs and FedExs of the world, they have really good engineering departments that have made a lot of advancements in aircraft technology and aircraft safety internally to their own companies, mm-hmm. which the outside observer wouldn't really notice, but they do. So they have a lot of aircraft knowledge. They know what they're talking about and they, and they know what the customer routes are and where they make money. And, um, if you can have some say in the aircraft design early on, then that could be very, very beneficial to you as, as a shipper It helps you just save money overall.
0: So let's let's transition here to uh, to WISC. So WISC has been in the news recently They're, um Well, they have some litigation pending on a, a patent infringement with uh, Archer, which we won't get into today, but they've been in the news a couple of different avenues. But I want to talk about their right. new paper uh, on autonomous uh, UAMs, you know, and it's titled Taking Mobility to New Heights. <laughs> and, you know, so this is basically in four chunks, this this PDF. Section one talks about commuters, uh, section two about um, autonomous EVTOLs and consumer interest. And then part three, you know, it fitting into people's lives and then, you know, their their vision for the future after that. Um, mm. But to me, this read as like a puff piece that just talks about how fun mm. and great, air, you know, EVTOLs can be for commuters to not have to commute because they essentially I'll read you the demographics. They had a a research company do this sort of, um, uh, survey study for them. And people age 21 to 65 living in one of the top 30 DMA markets. So like the big, um, you know, like Denver main, you know, their main area, DC main area, whatever, um, Mm -hmm. 75,000 plus per year income currently employed commute once a week, 30 plus minutes, um open mind positive attitude towards planes helicopters electric vehicles etc not employed in an adjacent industry so no one from the i don't know petroleum industry would probably be uh, in this included in here but so anyway people who are making decent money open-minded about electric vehicles who obviously hate their commute everyone hates their commute no matter how long it is for the most part so right (laughs) um you know, and, and but to me, this again, did it kind of read like a business plan like a college sophomore would make and maybe this was their intent that it's just very surface level. But top level, Yeah. if you're if you're just talking about and you're polling people about why they hate their commute and if they hate their commute and if you if they'd like a solution for their commute, <laughs> like who wouldn't answer? Yes. Like, hey, Dan, would you like to not commute 45 minutes? absolutely would you like to take a plane sure that sounds wonderful um right. you know like what else what, you know like what would you do if you're commuting in a plane dan well i'd look out the window and i ch- check my email like there's quotes about that and stuff in, in this thing um and it it just it doesn't seem like those all seem like obvious good things about having an electric taxi take you to work but sure it didn't seem to address any of the things that people would ask which are well how safe are these what happens if one crashes it's like hey dan uh you commute an hour every day you just heard that uh evtol crashed and landed on some people on the street below many fatalities would you want to take an evtl after that uh maybe not you know um because there's going to be incidences like cars crash Commercial Airlines airliners crash, crash helica- right. helicopters crash, everything crashes. Sure. sure. So that's, a you know, the safety thing is a huge, huge problem, yeah. um, just going forward and the, the press involved in it. And then the fitting into people's lives, you know, talking about, you know, if you have to go to a heli, a little helipad or vertiport, whatever they call it. Right. You know, Hey, I'm here. You check in, you do all this stuff. I mean, how big of a commute, Alan, do you think you have to have to actually even save time? When you have to do the check-in, fly, and then hop out, and like yeah. you said, it's um, it's not going to be right next to your house.
1: Right. I think I, I think you have to have at least a forty-five minute commute, maybe an hour-long commute before it starts to make sense. But the, I think there's really two big drivers in this. One is what is the cost going to be, mm-hmm. right? So even if say you have that hour commute, not, not cheap, cut... not cheap for sure. I, I I don't think I don't think so. But there's a convenience factor, so you got to weigh that in. Your time is valuable, so it'll save you some time, and maybe that trade-off is worth it. The second, I think, is probably the more important piece early on is most people haven't flown in a small aircraft. And it's not like flying in a 737 or an A320. That's a totally different feel to it because you're going to feel every bit of turbulence you're going to feel that a lot more acceleration mm-hmm. and deceleration and uh, it's a closer environment so if you're if you don't think you're claustrophobic on a 737 but when you you're in something that's much much smaller you're going to start to feel it and particularly since you don't have any control when you're flying especially as a passenger and a small aircraft you feel like you don't have any control and that that Sense of un- that unsettling sense starts to creep up in your gut, like this doesn't feel right. And for a lot of people, that's enough to say, "I'm not doing it anymore." It's like yeah. taking that roller coaster ride. You, you know, you're standing on the ground watching the roller coaster go and go. Yeah, I could do that, but when you get in that roller coaster car and mm-hmm. it starts to click, click, click up the hill, it's like, man, I want, I don't want to be here anymore. I think there's going to be a good part of that coming into play. And so asking somebody on the street what they think about shortening the com- commute, everybody's going to say yes to that. Mm-hmm. Not, not throwing a price range out. It has, <laughs> it seems to me, it's like, you know, playing around a little bit because if you said it's a thousand dollars to save you 15 minutes, people are going to go no. Right. If it's yeah. $5, people are going to say yes. Right. So there's a price point in there, but I do think that you just don't know what flying in a small aircraft is like until you've done it. And is it for you or not for you? Because there's, there's a significant part of the population, probably 50%, maybe more that don't want to feel that way and don't think it's cool and won't do it. Right? So that's
0: an interesting. Yeah. A good insider point of view. Cause I hadn't thought about that. And then that's, I'm sure spot on that. A lot of people be like, I don't like this. I don't like this. I'd rather get back in my car, rather people cutting me off and giving me the finger than yeah.
1: Right, but I can stop the car and get out whenever I want to, which is part of my thing. What I fly is like there's times Mm -hmm. when I could fly, but I go, you know, it's not that far, and I would prefer to stop and take a break and not be locked Mm -hmm. in with a mask on the whole thing on an airplane flight. And I'll I'll drive instead, even though it's more risky. I feel like there's a little more independence to it. And I'm in control of the situation on an airline. You never feel like you're in control. Right? You just don't. Well, that's still
0: the bottleneck is the uh, where do you get on and where do you get off? Because yeah. if you're a commuter and you're like, OK, my commute's 45 minutes or say let say it's even an hour if you're not within 15 minutes of a vertiport. I mean, is it going to be worth your time at that point? I, right. You know, it's I like don't know. taking the train on the east coast because you got to drive there or take an uber there or take your bike there but if you're in the parking lot Mm -hmm. walk
1: over to the to the train station to the platform yeah wait (laughs) Right, Mm -hmm. nothing ever happens fast there you have to get there early so you don't miss it make sure you have a parking spot bing bang boom all of a sudden it's just like taking a train any vtl doesn't have that sort of feel I mean, it's not being advertised like that but it's essentially what it's going to boil down to is it's going to be like taking a train on some level you got to yeah. get to there get to the place pay the parking <laughs> walk to the platform get a ticket or do it on your app wait for the aircraft to get there waiting line probably much like a disney world ride for the guy in front of you to take his flight off somewhere to the next one comes in that's what it's going to end up being and is it worth it I don't know
0: yeah and there's gonna have to be you know like pretty strict controls as far as like you couldn't have you know a set of golf clubs with you if you needed them Probably like not. for after yeah. work you know you like there's they're gonna have to know how much each passenger weighs i would assume maybe maybe not roughly but uh, there's roughly. gonna be a payload issue you know that payload sure. is important um yeah it just seems difficult rather than just like okay my car is a hover car i'm gonna go outside get it and fly off like blade runner to work that would be right much more realistic maybe but right. and, and then like you said I mean if, is this a commuter thing where it's like you can actually afford this five days a week 20 of these flights a month I mean if it was Don't 50 know. bucks if it was 50 bucks both ways that's a thousand bucks a month If it's 50 bucks one way right. which I'm sure is on the low end of what this would probably cost especially initially now you're talking two thousand yeah. dollars a month you know it's a hundred dollars a day for 20 commutes you know, you've got to be an executive, some with a pretty, pretty good disposable income, to say that's worth it to
1: me. Right, that's that's true. It, I part of me f- is feeling like on the EVTL space, they're, they're they're pushing San Francisco and Silicon Valley as a place with high incomes and a lot of places you can possibly land, and there's it has that feel to it, like the the financial aspects could work itself out and maybe there's enough quote unquote risk takers that they would want mm-hmm. to do something like this same thing on sort of in the, the new york area also but in other places where um oh, china obviously china i mean i mean china is a place where there's a lot of congestion and there's a lot of pollution um and they're trying to clean it up does the american EV tall market just shift to there maybe brazil same sort of thing Right? A lot of helicopters are used in Brazil right now for a variety of reasons. London, where you have taxes to fly to drive into the city, you have to pay a tax. Well, maybe you don't have to pay a tax if you quote unquote fly an electric vehicle. And Th- those are kind of your opportunities, but I do think they're limited right now. And it may not be in the United States if the aircraft price is more than roughly a half million dollars. I think they're going to have trouble selling it to the general pilot population in the states. Mm-hmm. That will be, I think, difficult. But there are other places on the planet where it may make sense. So is a marketplace truly in the United States or is, or they think a little more broader? And, and that's my guess, is that they're thinking broader, that there's other places in the world where this thing may fit.
0: That's an interesting thought. Yeah. And it would be, I mean, I, I think these, as far as like little commuter planes, if you own, like you said, you own your own EVTOL. Is that a lot safer for you traveling in than a, you know, a small whether it's a Cessna or any other type of small personal aircraft, you know, Don't maybe, know maybe more maybe. convenient, maybe not. like Yeah. Maybe. But that's also an interesting market. If you live in, you know, if you lived on, on Long Island and you want to commute to Manhattan, could you fly that 150 miles? You know, there's a lot of wealthy people out there, obviously. Yeah. Would that be a good solution for you? Maybe.
1: Yeah. There's engineers that do that in the aerospace world that they, if they're, if they're place of employment is near the airport or at the airport and they live out in the country, a lot of times these <laughs> crazy engineers will have their own uh, runway in an air- airplane and they'll, they'll fly to work. I've seen that many times in aerospace people will fly to and from work. They make that daily commute via airplane if the weather's good. And if the weather's not good, then they're driving, but they will do that. So there is that marketplace, but they're not buying an aircraft for they're buying an aircraft for $100,000, $200,000 and not buying an aircraft that's over $500,000 to a million dollars. You know, they're yeah. buying a little single-engine Piper, Cessna, beach airplane to do those runs in. And that's that's the right price point to do that. You can't make that million dollars up or two or four or five million dollars up flying to and from work. You That doesn't make any sense at all.
0: All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at WeatherGuardAero.com. That's WeatherGuardAero.com.